I said last night that one of my major concerns was passing my driving test. I was frightened to fail it. Now, that might seem rather trivial to most people, but quite legitimately, it would be the first thing that I would ever have passed. Having felt that sense of failure even in school carried with it significant repercussions in my life. But it was only when I looked back, the fear of failing my driving test, when I had grown older, in fact, that fear was quite trivial. It was only when I recognized that there was a greater problem, a greater difficulty, that you could feel a sense of failure in life or a sense of failure before God, that that was ultimately distressing. What do we do with a sense of failure? One that haunts us on regular occasions and intervals. I think we find some consolation and comfort in this passage this morning, in Micah chapter 7. And I've divided up into four points that I want you to consider today as we work through it. I'm going to read to you verses 1 to 6 of Micah 7, and I hope that you have your Bibles with you. Now listen to this. This is quite an interesting landscape that Micah is painting. What misery is mine. I am like one who gathers fruit, summer fruit, at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright worse than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman has come. The day God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace... Be careful of your words. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. What a picture. What a barren landscape is presented in these first six verses as we read them. 
Even if we were to begin to list some of the calamities that this nation is actually experiencing, it's a nation far from God, according to verse 2. It is a nation beset by violence, both in terms of the communities that surround towns and villages and in those towns and villages, but also within the domestic dysfunctionality that marriages and families are experiencing. In verse 3, we have the maximizing of evil itself. We have the misuse of power. We have the breaches of injustice. In verse 4, we have prevailing judgments, not just impending judgment. The judgment of God is now falling upon them as a nation. It has resulted in verse 5 in total chaos and in verse 6, relational turmoil. When it comes into the very basis of the home itself, it is most distressing. Look at how he frames it. For as a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the members of his own household. It can't really get much worse than that. If the very place that you turn to for comfort and reassurance deserts you, your own family, if your family is failing to provide the care and the nourishment that you need and the nation is incapable of providing it because of its barrenness, then what sort of harsh landscape is Micah writing these words into? I'm sure that you're ahead of me this morning. That many of you are thinking, well, that just sums up where we live. That sums up the climate or the time that we're experiencing in our world. Not just in our own province, our own nation, but indeed throughout the world. Could it not be described by many today that we have become nations far from God? Or at least within our own nation, we feel that we have lost grip on respecting the divine? Is it not common practice at times for there to be dysfunctionality in our lives personally and collectively? Are we not prone to violence? Do we not look at horror on the television about how people can treat one another? Surely we accept that there is a misuse of power. That can be national, governmental, can be ecclesiastical, can be within any structures that people try to dominate or domineer over other individuals. Breaches in justice and maybe chaos and confusion and upset seem to be rampant within our world. I remember one time having to do a literature class as part of an undergrad at university. And I was introduced to the writings of Joseph Conrad at one stage. And I'm not going to get into a literature review on the heart of darkness, but just to give you one, um, a couple of sentences that he wrote in the middle of that book. He said, Droll thing life is. That mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. The most you can hope from it 
is some knowledge of yourself that comes too late. A crop of inextinguishable regrets. Wow. If I was to pronounce the benediction now, the number of people who would drop off this live stream would be unbelievable. Surely, surely, there must be some way out of this. In fact, Joseph Conrad writes at the very end, he cried out twice, a cry that was no more than a breath, the horror, the horror. It's not the sort of reading that you want to go to bed on. It's not the sort of thing that you want to contemplate every day of the week. But yet when you and I look at the barren landscape, we can become overwhelmed by the failures of this world. And when we concentrate upon that and then become introspective, we recognize that our own personal feelings causes perhaps the deepest angst humanly possible. We are aware of that we do not reach the standard that God requires. And when we translate this down into very practical terms, if you look at your life and you think that you're feeling in it, and you may possibly have that perception, and you may actually have the very real perception that you're feeling God, And it might be grounded in some facts as you reflect and consider upon it. What if you are that person who has told lies? And those lies trouble you at night. And the fact that you cannot be honest to other people about what you're concealing leaves you feeling a sense of deep and profound failure. Maybe you're failing in your relationships. You're incapable of keeping good relationships. For whatever victim of life circumstances you have become, you know that you treat people in the way that they do not deserve. Maybe it's a misuse of power. Maybe you know that you fail to recognize the humanity of others. That you're only interested in your own personal gain. What happens if all of us become so conscious of our own sin that we become overwhelmed and consumed by a sense of despondency and failure? What happens if, like Joseph Conrad, we write in the book that there's a possibility that we will have a crop of in extinguishable regrets. Is that how life should pan out? Is that how life will end? I think we need to take a step back and we need to think about what Micah has written. And the first and glorious point is that Micah makes a bold confession in verse 7. And it's this. But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. But as for me, 
I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. Aren't those absolutely tremendous words? He says, but as for me. But as for me. There has to be a but in this, doesn't there? Micah himself contrasts everything with what he has said before. I have painted this dark picture, Micah has said. This is the world that I live in. This is my personal experience in that world. Full of failed relationships. Full of corruption. And the misuse of power. Full of sin. Overwhelmed by the acknowledgement of the chaos that results from a nation that is far from God and from people who are far from God and have made some horrendous mistakes and poor choices in life. Confronted with that assessment of who they are and the world that they live in, what hope is there? Is it going to be a place of inextinguishable regrets or is there recovery in this? Yes, there is. There needs to be a bold confession this morning. In verse 7, it is given to us. But as for me, but as for me, are you going to make that confession this morning? That you're going to turn away from the sins that you've committed, the feelings that you feel, all the mistakes that you have made, acknowledging that they exist, but saying, but as for me, my hope is going to be in God. I am going to hope that he can rectify the problems and feelings in my life long before he can rectify the problems and feelings in the world. I am not responsible for the world's feelings, but I am responsible for my own. The beauty of this verse is that we can experience God. We can make the bold confession that we're going to turn from that world and from our own feelings to the only one who can remedy them, and that is God himself. So we have a barren landscape, and we have a bold confession. But thirdly, and thankfully, we have a resolute confidence, and it's given to us in verse 8. Do not gloat over me, mine enemy, though I have fallen. I will rise. Isn't that wonderful? Though I have fallen, I will rise. Do you lie on the ground this morning? Does the enemy taunt you, not just tempt you? When you think of all the mistakes that you have made, when that sin that you have been involved in comes back to haunt you, Does our enemy, the devil, not just be your tempter, but your taunter? You have fallen. You have made a mistake. You will never rise again. There is no recovery for you in this particular situation. You are condemned and damned for your sin. It is right, the enemy says, that you condemn yourself for what you have done. But any prospect of recovery, that is a dream too far. 
And this verse reminds us that that is a lie from the enemy himself. I will rise again. Hebrew scholars say that the Hebrew tense here is a vivid and dramatic one. And they say it describes a situation that no one anticipated. A complete reversal of expectation. Take a moment to think about that again. The very tense of this Hebrew word describes a situation that no one anticipated. Because you have gone beyond the ability to hope or anticipate a recovery. Your feelings are final as far as you're concerned, but not as far as God's concerned. He needs you to avert your gaze away from your life and the world around you and say, but as for me, today I'm going to make a bold confession. The only one that can deal with my problems, my feelings and my sin is God himself. And God in response to you will give you a resolute confidence that you can and will rise again regardless of a lack of anticipation. And regardless of the lack of expectation that your situation can be reversed. I don't know, you don't really need to be in the boxing to remember the first of the uh, Wilder Fury fights. It was one of those dramatic encounters. And right there in the closing stages of the fight, Tyson was knocked to the floor, to the canvas. He looked out. But suddenly, he seemed to pop up. And he rose to his feet. And it was against the expectation of Wilder. Because Wilder had already started his celebration in the ring. He had started to make movements that was anticipating that Fury was going to be counted out. And suddenly, as if unexpectedly, he rose from the canvas to his feet and carried on in that battle. How important it was that he was able to do that. What about you? Are you prepared to rise to your feet today? I want you to turn with me just for a few moments to three little verses. The first of those is in Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Overwhelmed today by your sense of failure and feeling a sense of God's judgment upon you for the sins that you've committed. And rightfully, his discipline comes regards to the mistakes that we make. But remember this and remember the hope that's found in these words and this hope cannot be taken away from us. That his judgment on us if we're repentant is temporary, but his forgiveness lasts a lifetime. And though you weep now for your feelings, that will give way to joy. 
his wrath is removed. And secondly, in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 6, we read these words. Verse 16. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. The truth is that it's a righteous man who has fallen. And it may be that you desire to serve God on a regular basis, but you are sometimes overwhelmed by the sense of disappointment that you let God down on occasions? Well, take comfort from these verses. Today, you rise seven times. Get up onto your feet and carry on. God's love will cover the multitude of your sins. And finally, in Psalm 40, Verses 1 to 3, we read these words. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of a slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to my God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. How wonderful is that? that only he and he alone can lift us from the miry clay. Only he and he alone can be glorified for our recovery. And what a recovery it is. What a recovery. Because finally, we have a marvelous mercy and a wonderful victory. If you look at verse 9, He executes judgment not against me, but for me. He executes judgment not against me, but for me. In other words, the wrath that should have been poured out upon me has not. And he is prepared to take away his wrath. Why? Because one was coming who would be our substitute so that we were not the recipients of God's wrath, knowing that we could not keep the law in its entirety, that we were failing and falling. He sent his Son He died for you because he loved you. And the judgment that should have been executed against you, he took upon himself so that you would not be the failure that the devil taunts you over. And one day, as verse 10 says, even our accusers will be removed. One day, for all of us, we're looking forward to that day when the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, 
is no longer able to accuse us. And one day that we who are own accusers often overcome with a sense of self-condemnation, that that too is removed. Because finally, without the presence and power of sin in our lives, we are in God's presence. No longer to be the recipient of accusation of our own personal failure. That day is coming sooner than we expect. But we can get a glimpse of it today in our own personal lives. I cannot emphasize this more strongly than I'm seeking to do today. Do not let the enemy rob you of joy because of the mistakes that you have made. Do not let a sense of personal failure disable you from experiencing God's wonderful peace. Do not let the enemy rehearse in your head and your heart of your constant propensity towards mistakes. This verse reminds us of a bold confession that we can make, but for me, I, in the midst of all of this, will have a resolute confidence that I will rise again, that I will not remain on the canvas of life that I am the recipient of a marvelous mercy, that God, because I come to him, dependent upon him totally for forgiveness, will forgive me because he loves me and he cares for me and he sent his son to die for me. And that you can know today your sins removed as far as the east is from the west. Such great... And mighty is his love and his mercy that you can be washed whiter than snow. Today, fall at his feet with love and receive his grace. This God has done it for you and for me. May this God who sent his son send his Holy Spirit right into your room and into your heart. And may you experience his grace of forgiveness and the joy of freedom of no longer feeling a failure, but truly feeling like one of his sons or like one of his daughters. Let's pray.